Chapter Two of Reed Anthony Cowman, an autobiography by Andy Adams. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. My apprenticeship. During the winter of eighteen sixty-five, eighteen sixty-six, I corresponded with several of my old comrades in Texas. Beyond a welcome which could not be questioned, little encouragement was, with one exception, offered me among my old friends. It was a period of uncertainty throughout the South, yet a cheerful word reached me from an old soldier crony living some distance west of Fort Worth on the Brazos River. I had great confidence in my former comrade, and he held out a hope, assuring me that if I would come, in case nothing else offered, we could take his ox teams the next winter and bring in a cargo of buffalo robes. The plains to the westward of Fort Griffin, he wrote, were swarming with buffalo, and wages could be made in killing them for their hides. This caught my fancy, and I was impatient to start at once, but the healing of my reopened wound was slow, and it was March before I started. My brother gave me a good horse and saddle, twenty-five dollars in gold, and I started through a country unknown to me personally. Southern Missouri had been in sympathy with the Confederacy, and whatever I needed while traveling through that section was mine for the asking. I avoided the Indian Territory until I reached Fort Smith, where I rested several days with an old comrade who gave me instructions and routed me across the reservation of the Choctaw Indians, and I reached Paris, Texas without mishap. I remember the feeling that I experienced while being ferried across Red River. That watercourse was the northern boundary of Texas, and while crossing it, I realized that I was leaving home and friends and entering a country, the very name of which to the outside world was a synonym for crime and outlawry. Yet some of as good men as ever it was my pleasure to know came from that state, and undaunted, I held a true course for my destination. I was disappointed on seeing Fort Worth, a straggling village on the Trinity River, and, merely halting to feed my mount, passed on. I had a splendid horse, and averaged thirty to forty miles a day when traveling, and early in April reached the home of my friend in Palo Pinto County. The primitive valley of the Brazos was enchanting and the hospitality of the Edwards Ranch was typical of my own Virginia. George Edwards, my crony, was a year my junior, a native of the state, his parents having moved west from Mississippi the year after Texas won her independence from Mexico. The elder Edwards had moved to his present home some fifteen years previous, carrying with him a stock of horses and cattle, which had increased until in 1866 he was regarded as one of the substantial ranchmen in the Brazos Valley. The ranch house was a staunch one, built at a time when defense was to be considered as well as comfort, and was surrounded by fine cornfields. The only drawback I could see there was that there was no market for anything, nor was there any money in the country. The consumption of such a ranch made no impression on the increase of its herds, which grew to maturity with no demand for the surplus. 
I soon became impatient to do something. George Edwards had likewise lost four years in the army and was as restless as myself. He knew the country, but the only employment in sight for us was his teamsters with outfits, freighting government supplies to Fort Griffin. I should have jumped at the chance of driving oxen, for I was anxious to stay in the country and suggested to George that we ride up the Griffin. But the family interposed, assuring us that there was no occasion for engaging in such menial work, and we folded our arms obediently, or rode the range under the pretense of looking after the cattle. I might as well admit right here that my anxiety to get away from the Edwards ranch was fostered by the presence of several sisters of my former comrade. Miss Gertrude was only four years my junior, a very dangerous age, and in spite of all the resolutions to the contrary, I felt myself constantly slipping. Nothing but my poverty and the hopelessness of it kept me from falling desperately in love. But a temporary relief came during the latter part of May. Reports came down the river that a firm of drovers were putting up a herd of cattle for delivery at Fort Sumner, New Mexico. Their headquarters were at Belknap, a long day's ride above on the Brazos, and immediately, on receipt of the news, George and I saddled and started up the river. The elder Edwards was very anxious to sell his beef cattle and a surplus of cow horses, and we were commissioned to offer them to the drovers at prevailing prices. On arriving at Belknap, we met the pioneer drover of Texas, Oliver Loving, of the firm of Loving and Goodnight, but were disappointed to learn that the offerings in making up the herd were treble the drover's requirements. Neither was there any chance to sell horses, but an application for work met with more favor. Mr. Loving warned us of the nature of the country, the dangers to be encountered, all of which we waived, and were accordingly employed at forty dollars a month in gold. The herd was to start early in June. George Edwards returned home to report, but I was immediately put to work, as the junior member of the firm was then out receiving cattle. They had established a camp, and at the time of our employment were gathering beef steers in Loving's brand and holding the herd as it arrived, so that I was initiated into my duties at once. I was allowed to retain my horse, provided he did his share of the work. A mule and three range horses were also allotted to me, and I was cautioned about their care. There were a number of saddle mules in the remuda, and Mr. Loving explained that the route was through a dry country, and that experience had taught him that a mule could withstand thirst longer than a horse. I was a new man in the country, and absorbed every word and idea as a sponge does water. With the exception of roping, I made a hand from the start. The outfit treated me courteously, and there was no concealment of my past occupation, and I soon had the friendship of every man in the camp. It was some little time before I met the junior partner, Charlie Goodnight, a strapping young fellow of about thirty, who had served all through the war in the frontier battalion of Texas Rangers. The Comanche Indians had been a constant menace on the western frontier of the state, and during the rebellion had allied themselves with the federal side, 
and had harassed the settlements along the border. It required a regiment of mounted men to patrol the frontier from Red River to the coast, as the Comanches claimed the whole western half of the state as their hunting grounds. Early in June, the herd began to assume its required numbers. George Edwards returned, and we naturally became bunkies, sharing our blankets and having the same guard on night herd. The drovers encouraged all the men employed to bring along their firearms, and when we were ready to start, the camp looked like an arsenal. I had a six-shooter, and my bunkie brought me a needle gun from the ranch, so that I felt armed for any emergency. Each of the men had a rifle of some make or other, while a few of them had as many as four pistols, two in their belts and two in saddle holsters. It looked to me as if this was to be a military expedition, and I began to wonder if I had not had enough war the past few years, but kept quiet. The start was made on June 10, 1866, from the Brazos River, in what is now Young County, the herd numbering 2,200 big beeves. A chuck wagon, heavily loaded with supplies, and drawn by six yoke of fine oxen, a remuda of 85 saddle horses and mules, together with 17 men, constituted the outfit. Fort Sumner lay to the northwest, and I was mildly surprised when the herd bore off to the southwest. This was explained by young Goodnight, who was in charge of the herd, saying that the only route then open or known was on our present course to the Pecos River and thence up that stream to our destination. Indian sign was noticed a few days after starting. Goodnight and Loving both read it as easily as if it had been print. The abandoned camps, the course of arrival and departure, the number of horses, indicating who and what they were, war or hunting parties, everything apparently simple and plain as an alphabet to these plainsmen. Around the campfire at night, the chronicle of the Comanche tribe for the last thirty years was reviewed, and their overbearing and defiant attitude towards the people of Texas was discussed, not for my benefit, as it was common history. Then, for the first time, I learned that the Comanches had once mounted 10,000 warriors, had frequently raided the country to the coast, carrying off horses and white children, even dictating their own terms of peace to the Republic of Texas. At the last council, called for the purpose of negotiating for the return of captive white children in possession of the Comanches, the assemblies had witnessed a dramatic termination. The same indignity had been offered before, and borne by the whites, too weak to resist the numbers of the Comanche tribe. In this latter instance, one of the war chiefs, in spurning the remuneration offered for the return of a certain white girl, haughtily walked into the center of the council, where an insult could be seen by all. His act, a disgusting one, was anticipated, as it was not the first time it had been witnessed, when one of the Texans present drew a six-shooter and killed the chief in the act. The hatchet of the Comanche was instantly dug up, and had not been buried at the time we were crossing a country claimed by him as his hunting ground. Yet these drovers seemed to have no fear of an inferior race. 
we held our course without a halt, scarcely a day passing without seeing more or less fresh signs of Indians. After crossing the south fork of the Brazos, we were attacked one morning just at dawn, the favorite hour of the Indian for a surprise. Four men were on herd with the cattle, and one nearby with the remuda, our night horses all securely tied to the wagon wheels. A faint attack was made on the commissary, but under the leadership of Goodnight, a majority of us scrambled into our saddles and rode to the rescue of the remuda, the chief objective of the surprise. Two of the boys from the herd had joined the horse wrangler, and on our arrival all three were wickedly throwing lead at the circling Indians. The remuda was running at the time, and as we cut through between it and the savages, we gave them the benefit of our rifles and six-shooters in passing. The shots turned the saddle-stock back towards our camp, and the mounted braves continued on their course, not willing to try issue with us, although they outnumbered us three to one. A few arrows had embedded themselves in the ground around the camp at the first assault, but once our rifles were able to distinguish an object clearly, the Indians kept well out of reach. The cattle made a few surges, but once the remuda was safe, there was an abundance of help in holding them, and they quieted down before sunrise. The Comanche had no use for cattle except to kill and torture them, as they preferred the flesh of the buffalo, and once our saddle stock and the contents of the wagon were denied them, they faded into the dips of the plain. The journey was resumed without the delay of an hour. Our first brush with the noble red man served a good purpose, as we were doubly vigilant thereafter, whenever there was a cause to expect an attack. There was an abundance of water as we followed up the South Fork and its tributaries, passing through Buffalo Gap, which was afterward a well-known landmark on the Texas and Montana cattle trail. Passing over the divide between the waters of the Brazos and Concho, we struck the old Butterfield stage route, running by way of Fort Concho to El Paso, Texas, on the Rio Grande. This stage road was the original staked plain, surveyed and located by General John Pope in 1846. The route was originally marked by stakes until it became a thoroughfare, from which the whole northwest Texas afterward took its name. There was a 96-mile dry drive between the headwaters of the Concho and Horsehead Crossing on the Pecos, and before attempting it, we rested a few days. Here Indians made a second attack on us, and although as futile as the first, one of the horse wranglers received an arrow in the shoulder. In attempting to remove it, the shaft separated from the steel arrowhead, leaving the latter embedded in the lad's shoulder. We were then 112 miles distant from Fort Concho, the nearest point where medical relief might be expected. The drovers were alarmed for the man's welfare. It was impossible to hold the herd longer, so the young fellow volunteered to make the ride alone. He was given the best horse in the remuda, and, with the falling of darkness, started for Fort Concho. I had the pleasure of meeting him afterward, as happy as he was, hale and hearty. The start across the arid stretch was made at noon. Every hoof 
had been thoroughly watered in advance. And with the heat of summer on us, it promised to be an ordeal to man and beast. But Loving had driven it before, and knew fully what was before him as we trailed out under a noonday sun. An evening halt was made for refreshing the inner man, and as soon as darkness settled over us, the herd was again started. We were conscious of the presence of Indians and deceived them by leaving our campfire burning, but holding our effects closely together throughout the night, the remuda even mixing with the cattle. When day broke, we were fully thirty miles from our noon camp of the day before. Yet, with the exception of an hour's rest, there was never a halt. A second day and night were spent in forging ahead, though it is doubtful if we averaged much over a mile an hour during that time. About fifteen miles out from the Pecos, we were due to enter a canyon known as Castle Mountain Gap, some three or four miles long, the exit of which was in sight of the river. We were anxious to reach the entrance of this canyon before darkness of the third day, as we could then cut the cattle into bunches, the cliffs on either side forming a lane. Our horses were as good as worthless during the third day, but the saddle mules seemed to stand grief nobly, and by dint of ceaseless effort we reached the canyon and turned the cattle loose into it. This was the turning point in the dry drive. That night two men took half the remuda and went through to Horsehead Crossing, returning with them early the next morning, and we once more had fresh mounts. The herd had been nursed through the canyon during the night, and although it was still twelve miles to the river, I have always believed that these beeves knew that water was at hand. They walked along briskly. Instead of the constant moaning, their heads were erect, bawling loud and deep. The oxen drawing the wagon held their chains taut, and the commissary moved forward as if drawn by a fresh team. There was no attempt to hold the herd compactly, and within an hour after starting on our last lap, the herd was strung out three miles. The rear was finally abandoned, and when half the distance was covered, the drag cattle to the number of fully five hundred turned out of the trail and struck directly for the river. They had scented the water over five miles, and as far as control was concerned, the herd was as good as abandoned, except that the water would hold them. Horsehead Crossing was named by General Pope. There is a difference of opinion as to the origin of the name, some contending that it was due to the meanderings of the river, forming a horse's head, and others that the surveying party was surprised by Indians and lost their stock. None of us had slept for three nights, and the feeling of relief on reaching the Pecos, shared alike by man and beast, is indescribable. Unless one has endured such a trial, only a faint idea of its hardships can be fully imagined. The long hours of patient travel at a snail's pace, enveloped by clouds of dust by day, and at night watching every shadow for a lurking savage. I have since slept many a time in the saddle, but in crossing that arid belt, the one consuming desire to reach the water ahead benumbed every sense save watchfulness. All the cattle reached the river before the middle of the afternoon, covering a front of five or six miles. 
the banks of the Pecos were abrupt, there being fully 125 feet of deep water in the channel at the stage crossing. Entrance to the ford consisted of a wagon way cut through the banks, and the cattle crowded into the river above and below, there being but one exit on either side. Some miles above, the beeves had found several passageways down to the water, but in drifting up and down stream, they had missed these entrances on returning. A rally was made late that afternoon to route the cattle out of the riverbed, one half the outfit going above, the remainder working around Horsehead, where the bulk of the herd had watered. I had gone upstream with Goodnight, but before we reached the upper end of the cattle, fresh Indian signs were noticed. There was enough broken country along the river to shelter the redskins, but we kept in the open and cautiously examined every break within gunshot of an entrance to the river. We succeeded in getting all the animals out of the water before dark, with the exception of one bunch, where the exit would require the use of a mattock before the cattle could climb it, and a few head that had bogged in the quicksand below Horsehead Crossing. There was little danger of a rise in the river. The loose contingent had a dry sandbar on which to rest, and as the Indians had no use for them, there was little danger of their being molested before morning. We fell back about a mile from the river and camped for the night. Although we were all dead for sleep, extra caution was taken to prevent a surprise, either good night or loving, remaining on guard over the outfit, seeing that the men kept awake on herd and that the guards changed promptly. Charlie Goodnight owned a horse that he contended could scent an Indian five hundred yards, and I have never questioned the statement. He had used him in the ranger service. The horse, by various means, would show his uneasiness in the immediate presence of Indians, and once the following summer we moved camp at midnight on account of the warnings of that same horse. We had only a remuda with us at the time, but another outfit encamped with us refused to go, and they lost half their horses from an Indian surprise the next morning, and never recovered them. I remember the ridicule which was expressed at our moving camp on the warnings of a horse. Injun bit, man afraid of his horse, were some of the terms applied to us. Yet the practical plainsman knew enough to take warning from his dumb beast. Fear, no doubt, gives horses an unusual sense of smell, and I have known them to detect the presence of a bear on a favorable wind at an incredible distance. The night passed quietly, and early the next morning we rode to recover the remainder of the cattle. An effort was also made to rescue the bogged ones. On approaching the river, we found the beeves still resting quietly on the sandbar. But we had approached them at an angle, for directly overhead and across the river was a break overgrown with thick brush, a splendid cover in which Indians might be lurking, in the hope of ambushing anyone who attempted to drive out the beeves. Two men were left with a single mattock to cut out and improve the exit, while the rest of us reconnoitered the thickety moat across the river. Goodnight was leery of the thicket and suggested firing a few shots into it. We all had long-range guns. The distance from bank to bank was over 200 yards. 
and a fusillade of shots was accordingly poured into the moat. To my surprise, we were rewarded by seeing fully twenty Indians skulk out of the upper end of the cover. Every man raised his sights and gave them a parting volley, but a mesquite thicket, in which their horses were secreted, soon sheltered them, and they fell back into the hills on the western side of the river. With the coast thus cleared, half a dozen of us rode down into the riverbed and drove out the last contingent of about three hundred cattle. Goodnight informed us that those Indians had no doubt been watching us for days, and cautioned us never to give a Comanche an advantage, advice which I never forgot. On our return, every one of the bogged cattle had been freed except two heavy beeves. These animals were mired above the ford in rather deep water, and it was simply impossible to release them. The drovers were anxious to cross the river that afternoon, and a final effort was made to rescue the two steers. The oxen were accordingly yoked, and, with all the chain available, were driven into the river and fastened on to the nearest one. Three mounted drivers had charge of the team, and when the word was given, six yoke of cattle bowed their necks and threw their weight against the yokes. But the quicksand held the steer in spite of all their efforts. The chain was freed from it, and the oxen were brought around and made fast again at an angle and where the footing was better for the team. Again the word was given, and as the six yoke swung out, whips and ropes were plied amid a general shouting, and the team brought out the steer, but with a broken neck. There were no regrets, and our attention was at once given to the other steer. The team circled around. Every available chain was brought into use in order to afford the oxen good footing on a straightaway pull, with the position in which the beef lay bogged. The word was given for an easy pull. The oxen barely stretched their chains and were stopped. Goodnight cautioned the drivers that unless the pull was straight, another neck would be broken. A second trial was made. The oxen swung and weaved. The chains fairly cried. The beef's head went under water. But the team was again checked in time to keep the steer from drowning. After a breathing spell for oxen and victim, the call was made for a rush. A driver was placed over every yoke, and the word given, the oxen fell to their knees in the struggle, whips cracked over their backs, ropes were plied by every man in charge, and, amid a din of profanity applied to the struggling cattle, the team fell forward in general collapse. At first it was thought the chain had parted, but as the latter came out of the water, it held in its iron grasp the horns and a portion of the skull of the dying beef. Several of us rode out to the victim, whose brain lay bare, still throbbing and twitching with life. Rather than allow his remains to pollute the river, we made a last pull at an angle, and the dead beef was removed. We bade Horsehead Crossing farewell that afternoon, and camped for the night above Dagger Bend. Our route now lay to the northwest, or up the Pecos River. We were then out twenty-one days from Belknap, and although only halfway to our destination, the worst of it was considered over. 
There was some travel up and down the Pecos Valley. The route was even then known as the Chisum Trail, and afterward extended as far north as Fort Logan in Colorado and other government posts in Wyoming. This cattle trace should never be confounded with the Chisholm Trail, first opened by a half-breed named Jesse Chisholm, which ran from Red River Station on the northern boundary of Texas to various points in Kansas. In cutting across the bends of the Rio Pecos, we secured water each day for the herd, although we were frequently under the necessity of sloping down the banks with mattocks to let the cattle into the river. By this method, it often took us three or four hours to water the herd. Until we neared Fort Sumner, precautions never relaxed against an Indian surprise. Their sign was seen almost daily, but as they were weaker outfits than ours passing through, we escaped any further molestation. The methods of handling such a herd were a constant surprise to me, as well as the schooling of these plainsmen drovers. Good night had come to the plains when a boy of ten, and was a thorough master of their secrets. On one occasion, about midway between Horsehead Crossing and our destination, difficulty was encountered in finding an entrance to the river on account of its abrupt banks. It was late in the day, and in order to ensure a quiet night with the cattle, water became an urgent necessity. Our young foreman rode ahead and found a dry, sandy creek, its bed fully fifty yards wide, but no water, though the sand was damp. The herd was held back until sunset, when the cattle were turned into the creek bed and held as compactly as possible. The heavy beeves naturally walked back and forth, up and down, the sand just moist enough to aggravate them after a day's travel under a July sun. But the tramping soon agitated the sands, and within half an hour after the herd had entered the dry creek, the water arose in pools, and the cattle drank to their heart's content. As dew falls at night, moisture likewise rises in the earth, and with the twilight hour, the agitation of the sands and the weight of the cattle, a spring was produced in the desert waste. Fort Sumner was a six-company post and the agency of the Apaches and Navajos. These two tribes numbered over 9,000 people, and our herd was intended to supply the needs of the military post and these Indians. The contract was held by Patterson and Roberts, eligible by virtue of having cast their fortunes with the victor in the late unpleasantness, and otherwise fine men. We reached the post on the 20th of July. There was a delay of several days before the cattle were accepted, but all passed the inspection with the exception of about 100 head. These were cattle which had not recuperated from the dry drive. Some few were footsore or thin in flesh, but taken as a whole, the delivery had every earmark of an honest one. Fortunately, this remnant was sold a few days later to some Colorado men, and we were footloose and free. Even the oxen had gone in on the main delivery, and harnesses were accordingly bought, a light tongue fitted to the wagon, and we were ready to start homeward. Mules were substituted for the oxen, and we averaged forty miles a day returning, almost itching for an Indian attack, as we had supplied ourselves with ammunition from the post sutler. 
the trip had been a financial success. The government was paying ten cents a pound for beef on foot. Friendly relations had been established with the holders of the award, and we hastened home to gather and drive another herd. End of chapter 2